Welcome to the KRS Molecular Minute Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shadi Navhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at KRS Life Sciences. The Precision Oncology Alliance is composed of many academic institutions and healthcare systems that are collaborating on data science, precision oncology, clinical research, clinical trials, with the goal of advancing the way we take care of patients so that their outcomes improve moving forward. Today's podcast is with Dr. Ari Vanderwald, who is the Global Head of Clinical Trials at Keras Life Sciences. We're going to talk about clinical research, clinical trials, the available clinical trials, and how we conduct clinical trials here. Before I air this episode, don't forget to please find the Keras Molecular Minute podcast anywhere you consume podcasts. Don't forget to rate the show, subscribe to it, and write a brief review so that this podcast is searchable easily. Forward and share this podcast with your colleagues and friends. I am certain that they're going to find a topic of interest to them. Without further ado, the one and only Dr. Ari Vanderwald on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Ari, this is the first time for you on uh, the uh, Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I appreciate you taking time and chatting with me and, and sharing some of your experience and wisdom as well as what you are doing on the clinical trials front. I think it's really important to share this broadly, internally and externally. But let's start just a little bit about you. So um, tell listeners who you are and, and what you do and how you end up at Keras. I'm a medical oncologist. I have been a clinical trialist since 2011, since right after I finished my fellowship um, at City of Hope Hospital. I started my career at Amgen, where I did drug development and clinical trials work on um, panitumumab and head and neck cancer and telimogene leherperepvec, which is an oncolytic virus in melanoma. Um, at that time, I was very lucky because that was when all of the other melanoma drugs were being uh, were being designed, including PD-1s and CTLA-4s and some of the molecular uh, uh, drugs like BRAF and MEK inhibitors. And so I really got to be a fly on the wall with uh, watching a lot of the sort of experts in immunotherapy and targeted therapy start to spread their wings and fly. And so after I left Amgen, I went to um, West Cancer Center in Memphis, Tennessee, where I'm still located. And um, I became the director of, of research there and also the associate vice chancellor for clinical research at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, also in Memphis. And really, I spent the next 10 years or so really honing clinical research skills, everything from designing trials to running trials to enrolling patients on clinical trials, writing up uh, results, and managing a very large practice of, uh, of uh, primary investigators we ran a department of about 50 research nurses and research personnel. Um, and so I got a lot of experience in terms of sort of being able to understand how clinical research works. Part of my responsibilities in clinical research were to enroll patients onto clinical trials across our entire trial portfolio. And in the 2010s to 2020s, one of the main types of trials that became available were molecularly directed clinical trials. So trials looking at BRAF mutations, ALK fusions, uh, EGFR mutations, whatever it might be, that was really much of the work that was being done in clinical research. And one of the challenges with those is that not every patient is eligible for those types of clinical trials. We had to do something in order to be able to find those patients and get those patients enrolled on these trials that could potentially be life-saving when 
many physicians in a in a large private practice weren't really thinking about every single trial that could be out there for molecular alterations that weren't obviously going to be disease modifying. And so we started a molecular tumor board. And uh, we worked at that time very closely with Karis at West Cancer Center to be able to start doing uh, sequencing for all of our patients at the first diagnosis of metastatic disease. And that basically revealed mutations that ultimately were going to drive the patient's tumors. And in building that molecular tumor board with the, with the sort of Karis engine behind it, we were able to identify large numbers of patients that were ultimately going to be eligible for clinical trials. And in addition to that, multiple patients that actually we decided would be better for standard of care therapy and patients that a few patients that we believed would be eligible for off-label therapy that might actually work better. One of the myths of molecular tumor boards is that it's going to cost insurance companies money. It's actually not the case at all. Um, when patients go on clinical trials, it actually costs insurance companies less money. When patients go on uh, when go on standard therapy, um, because of these results, it costs insurance companies less money. And generally, it is very helpful for insurance companies to be able to treat patients appropriately, um, whether they know it or not. In so doing, we began working very closely with Karis. Our molecular tumor board results, we were one of the first of our kind. Um, at West Clinic, we had a high-throughput molecular tumor board, whereby every patient with an actionable mutation was presented, um, and results were given. The results were put in the clinical charts. We did about 15 cases per week, and I actually myself went through every single result that was in the charts and pulled those that were relevant for the broader tumor board. So we were ultimately doing about 120 cases per month uh, by the time I left. Because of the work that we were doing, I got to work really closely with Karis in some other areas as well. And ultimately, that led me to move to Karis in October of 2021. So before we get into what you're doing, and this is really a very interesting career path, but you, you say that you're a clinical trialist and you talk about uh, understanding clinical trials. How much of this is formal training that you need to get versus really just kind of doing it and reading and, and reading the protocols and trying to look at the nuances? I mean, is there, let's say I, somebody says, I want to be a clinical trialist, like what do they do? There is a lot of formal training in clinical trials. You really should have a basic knowledge of biostatistics, a basic knowledge of epidemiology, and certainly a, a real working knowledge of uh, human subjects protection. Um, generally speaking, in clinical trials, you have to start realizing that you wear many hats as a physician. The first hat is patient care, and the second hat is dedication to expanding the breadth of science that's being designed in, into society. And that's something that a physician needs to be able to know how to do, um, to be able to realize that not every trial is necessarily there to help that patient directly in front of them. It's there to be able to help the next patient that they're seeing, and et cetera. So you don't, you know, most physicians out there who are doing clinical trials don't have formal training in clinical trials. And I think that that's a bit of a mistake. That said, there's a lot of formal training that can occur while physicians are in practice. So for example, it's very common for, uh, you know, every everybody who does a clinical trial in general needs to do basic training in human subjects protection. The most common training in that is usually done by the city program. Um, and virtually every drug company requires some sort of human subjects protection if you're going to do a drug company-sponsored trial. Um, there are a number of different classes that are offered either in fellowship program or off of fellowship program that can train you in basic epidemiology. 
And then many of the large clinical trial programs out there have some training programs that exist in clinical trials. So for example, any cancer doctor who does cooperative group studies has the opportunity to go to sort of clinical trial training programs in the days before the uh, the scientific meetings for the cooperative groups. Um, there's clinical trials training at many of the big society meetings. So in my case, I had formal clinical trial training, both in my master's in public health program, as well as during my fellowship program. But there's been so much sort of continuing medical education uh, opportunities that are available really for minimal cost uh, for those who really want to get involved. There are lots of different types of dabbling in clinical trials. So you can be a clinical trialist who basically just does what the drug companies tell you to do and enrolls patients into clinical trials and understands the inclusion exclusion criteria and tries to make sure that they you know, keep track of all the adverse events on the trial. That's one thing. Another piece, though, is writing your own clinical trial. And in order to do that, you really need to have training. In your experience, having done that for, for years, what have you seen, seen as you know, a couple of the major pitfalls that maybe physicians do when it comes to either writing, conducting, or even understanding clinical trials? Are there you know, a couple of things that you have seen as a theme where you like said, you know, this, this could have been done differently had the person had, you know, more in-depth understanding of trials. The, the biggest mistake that people make with clinical trials is trying to answer more than they can. Generally speaking, people often have their objectives in clinical trials either be very vague or have multiple different objectives. From a statistical perspective, that's very difficult, but even from a just interpretability perspective, that's very difficult. If you ask one question and you know how you want to measure the answer to that question, you will get an answer. If you ask 10 questions and you don't know how you want to measure any of the answers to that question, you're just going to have put a lot of people on exposure to potentially difficult, toxic therapy and get nothing out of it. Unfortunately, in the old days, that used to be very common. Um, drug companies used to sponsor physicians to do trials that didn't really have any goal other than to make sure that the doctor prescribed the drug for the patient from the drug company's perspective. That's changed in the last 15 years or so. Um, it's amazing that it's actually been that long, but it has changed in that the role of medical affairs in most of these companies is no longer just to put drug in the hands of doctors who get to play with it, but actually to answer scientific questions. This is a problem that I've seen not just at a low level of a doctor who just wants to dabble. I've seen this at the highest level of investigator in a large cooperative group setting where they come in and they say, I want to do a 15,000 patient, 1,500 patient clinical trial, and I want to answer these five questions with the clinical trial. Well, you're not going to answer five questions. You're going to answer one question. The rest of the questions that you want to answer, you can get a sense of what the answers are going to be. But if you try to answer five questions, you're not going to get the answer to any of them. Um, so that that's, I think, the biggest challenge. I have to I have to say the statistical piece. So I'm not a statistician. I mean, I know enough to kind of yeah, maybe I'll I I could have an intelligent conversation about statistics. But if I'm talking to a statistician, they'll know right away that I don't have. So so I mean, I'm not a statistician, and I know right away that you're not a statistician. But but I mean, how much statistics do we need to know? Because we really never got true formal training in fellowship about stats. I've taken statistics about four times at this point, and it has never stuck. So I still can't quite figure out the difference between alpha and beta. I still don't know the difference between chi-squared and T. 
there's a lot of things I don't know. I think that what you really need to know about bio, I, I do know the difference between alpha and beta, by the way, but I always say it wrong. I always say the difference between the inability to be able to prove away from the null. Right. What's important is to make sure that you have a biostatistician who you understand what they're saying, you understand where they're going, and that you can work with them really closely on trying to make sure that you have confidence with the result that you're going to show. Generally speaking, what you really want to have confidence with is a positive result. And that's where your alpha comes in. So that's the p-value. You want to be able to know that if you show a difference between something, that that difference is unlikely due to chance. Um, that's what a positive study is. You also, to some extent, want to have confidence in a negative result. And that's the beta or you know, a derivative of beta is power. Um, and if you're, if you have a negative result to your trial, you want to know what the likelihood is that that negative result is true. So when you have that sense and you realize that the main thing that you're playing with from a statistical perspective is number one, the number of patients that you actually have to put onto the clinical trial. And number two, what the difference is between A and B that you're actually trying to show, that's enough to get started with. You're the global head of clinical trials at Keras, and obviously there are so many types of clinical trials out there, especially for um, you know molecular profiling in a big data company. What can you share in terms of the type of clinical trials that, or the you know whether it's the portfolio or the opportunities of clinical trials that exist currently or might exist also in the near future? Any clinical trial list will tell you that there are only two types of clinical trials randomized control clinical trials and everything else, right? <laughs> That's just what they're going to tell you. <laughs> so the difference from a, from, a, from a proof perspective, of course, is the most obvious difference. A randomized control clinical trial, generally, if it's well-designed statistically, you can be relatively certain of the outcome. Everything else that you have is either some sort of an observational study or a single arm study or something else that you're really just kind of estimating your effect. At Keras, um, generally speaking, what we are doing is observational studies internally. So um, they're not fully observational because we're taking specimens in blood, but we're not giving drug. Uh, we're not giving interventional uh, uh, investigational product. And so the types of trials that we're, that we're tending to do internally is to try to determine whether or not we can predict how patients are going to do either with therapy or without therapy or some other way using molecular assays. And those molecular assays can fit into a number of different buckets. So they can be our standard molecular assay, which has already been pretty well proven, where we know, for example, if that a patient has a BRAF mutation, that patient is going to do better with a BRAF inhibitor. It's just, we know that. We don't necessarily know, though, whether or not a patient with X number of mutations in general, uh, regardless of what they are, is necessarily going to do better than those that don't have that number of mutations. That's sort of the TMB question. There have been questions about that from, from an immunotherapy perspective. It's not entirely well-defined. The areas that we're looking most, most extensively at right now is um, our blood assay. So Karis, as you know, Chatty, is coming out with a uh, CT-DNA, CT-RNA um, assay that is called Assure. And there are ways to be able to look at Assure as a way to determine whether or not disease monitoring can actually be used whether the amount of DNA that is present or RNA that is present in the blood can actually be a determinant of whether or not the disease is going to be progressing or responding to therapy. Um, so that's one of the studies that we're ultimately going to be doing very soon, if not already. 
Um, we're looking at minimal residual disease and early disease to see whether or not the presence or absence of minimal residual disease can ultimately predict whether a patient is going to relapse and when that relapse occurs. We're looking at whether blood can potentially help us in early detection of cancer. In patients who are very high risk of developing cancer, it's possible that doing a blood test can help guide the therapy that that patient might get, um, but more importantly, guide the uh, the screening that that patient might necessarily need to achieve. So using those types of tests to be able to do these observational studies is very exciting and interesting for us. The other work that we're doing is we're supporting big interventional clinical trials as well, um, either through the cooperative groups or uh, through individual investigators, whereby we help do the molecular components either the uh, of the clinical trial that they are doing. A couple of these trials are uh, randomized controlled clinical trials uh, already. Some of them we are uh, helping with the primary endpoint of the study. Um, some of them we're helping with secondary or exploratory endpoints of the study. But generally speaking, some of these trials are actually looking at results that we can actually come up with and determine whether or not those results can drive therapy. And that's the type of partnership that we at Karis really want to be able to see in a clinical trials program, whereby we can use our test to help determine effective therapy in patients. We can do that through various different partnerships. We can do that ourselves to some extent. We can do that with our with biopharmaceutical companies, and we can do that with investigators within our POA, and we're doing that already. You know, one of the questions that oftentimes people ask, and, and it's, it's not clear in my mind or maybe the minds of some of our listeners, when you decide to use the liquid assay to whether you're doing, you know, again, measuring the CT, DNA, RNA, how do you decide on the intervals of how, when do you actually need to measure? Because technically, for some of these trials, these patients don't have radiographic evidence of disease. And you kind of try to see if you can detect something on the molecular level. Is this like an arbitrary decision? I'm going to measure this every month, every three months, every four months, or is there really science behind the frequency and the duration when you measure these? Yes and yes. Um, it is both arbitrary as well as there is science behind it. And You're it really- You're being a politician. You're being a politician. No, I mean, listen, you know, we don't have good evidence on when you're supposed to scan, scan patients and metastatic disease even. I mean, are you scanning every six weeks, every eight weeks, every 12 weeks? I mean, is it different for every malignancy? Does it really matter? I mean, we've never done those studies at all. We haven't done uh, great studies trying to figure out how often we're supposed to check PSAs in patients with prostate cancer. We don't actually know interval. In many cases, we don't even know how often we're supposed to be giving drug. You know, I mean, yes, we have all sorts of pharmacokinetic modeling and we've been trying it in rats and mice, but we still don't necessarily know what ideal dosing is. So generally speaking, we are, you know, one of the big black boxes in oncology and, and medicine in general has to do with intervals. It just does. That said, what you ideally want to do is you want to be able to get some information that you wouldn't have already gotten. Um, and so a good time to do interval testing of blood is at a time that right now you're not going to have already gotten some other measurement of the disease. That's, that is a good point. I'd like you just to re-explain further because I don't want this. It's a nuance, but I think listeners need to pay attention. What, what you're saying is I want to do the test at a time where normally I would not have done a CAT scan or an MRI. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you don't want to be able to continue to get multiple different sources of information that are going to be contradicting each other at the same time point, unless there's a reason to actually do a study to think that one is better than the other. 
when you want, if you actually want to compare the two, then yeah, do them at the same time. If you don't want to compare them, do them at alternating time points. So for MRD, for example, you want to do the test at a time that you're not already going to be getting a scan if you're doing it in practice. If you're doing disease monitoring, you want to do it at a time that you're not already getting a scan. So that's generally the type of interval testing that you want to do. Now, the, the question is not only intervals, it's also how many do you actually have to do overall? Do you keep doing it for two, three, five, ten 10 years? Or do you at some point just have diminishing marginal returns? At which point you say, look, you know, the patient hasn't had any residual disease in 10 years. They're not coming back. And we do that also with imaging. You know, you do every three months for some malignancies, you do every three months for two years, then every six months, then once a year. I mean, so most of this stuff is unfortunately, as a clinical trialist, it really bothers me because most of this stuff is not data-driven. It's mostly just, you know, trial and error. Yeah. Where you've kind of figured some of this stuff out. Unfortunately, you know, they're not big money maker types of trials to be able to answer it, which one you do it. That said, you know, one of the first things you learn in medical school is if you don't take a temperature, you can't find a fever. So that means two things. Number one, you have to check if you think the patient's sick. And number two, don't check if you don't think the patient's sick, right? So I think that we have to be a little bit careful as well about checking patients that really all we're doing is getting another data point for no particular reason whatsoever. Yeah. My last question, and I know you, you know, I'm, I know I take a lot of time uh, of your busy schedule, but it goes along the lines of the signature work. I think we, you know, hopefully many of our listeners know that Garris has been doing a lot of signature work, trying to leverage real world data into identifying some signal of uh, something that is clinically relevant and important. How difficult in general for, for you as a clinical trialist, you've done over a decade and plus working in clinical trials, how difficult is to validate some of these findings where you really want to separate signal from noise? It depends on what you're trying to answer. So separating signal from noise is not a primary objective of a clinical trial. Unfortunately, that's not the way they get designed. Um, <laughs> if you want to be able to show that a patient with signature A does differently than a patient with signature B, that's a relatively easy trial to design. If you want to start looking at continuous results, though, where you have you know 17 different potential signatures and you want to show who does better than which, that becomes a lot more difficult. So it's a lot easier to be able to do a dichotomous trial than to do a you know multiple. And the reason that I say this is that we've just come up with a brain metastasis signature that unfortunately I think has seven or eight different strata of signature prediction. That's a little bit difficult to be able to do. In addition, what you also wanna be able to do is make things not just prognostic, but also predictive. So an MRD trial, for example, an MRD really is just a fancy, is just a miniature signature. In order to be able to do whether or not you can determine whether or not a patient with signature X actually does better with therapy Y than patient with signature Z does, you actually have to do a four-arm clinical trial, and that becomes a little bit more complicated. So depending on what you want to get out of your signature, it's a little bit more of a complicated trial. If you're just comparing how patients do, it's pretty easy. If you want to compare how you know with no intervention, if you want to look at different interventions based on different signatures, it becomes a little bit more complicated. Very, very interesting. And I think, you know, I go back to your most important point. Really, you have to know what you're trying to answer. I think yes. in designing the clinical trial, knowing what you're trying to answer. And I loved what you said 
look, you can't answer five, six things in a clinical trial. This is really this is really important. Anything before I let you go, anything I should have asked you that you'd like to share with listeners that I may have completely overlooked? No, I mean, I think that it's just important that if anybody on this call wants to be interested in doing a clinical trial, you have to have a long time frame. My a trial that I wrote in 2014 just got published in 2023. I think that you just have to realize that the speed at which change occurs in the oncology world is extremely rapid when you take the 20,000 foot view. But when you take an individual trial, it takes years to be able to get results. It's a long haul. It's a labor of love, but it's the way that things change and the way that we actually make um, positive change for patients um, in oncology. And so stick with it. And congratulations on that, uh, these findings. Maybe in one minute or less, do you want to share the findings of this clinical trial you just... Sure. Um, yeah. So uh, we just published in Nature Medicine the results of SWOG 1616. Um, SWOG 1616 is a phase two study looking at patients with melanoma. And again, I started in melanoma, so it's still my 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 area of interest. Um, in patients with metastatic melanoma who on first line progressed on PD-1 inhibitors, which is the standard co uh, component of first line therapy, seeing whether those patients would benefit from continuing the PD-1 inhibitor and combining it with the CTLA-4 inhibitor ipilimumab or just switching to ipilimumab alone. Um, and what we found was that actually continuing the PD-1 inhibitor even beyond progression and combining it with ipilimumab caused a significant increase in progression-free survival among those patients who got the combination uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.63. So about a 37% increase in progression-free survival. And that that's a big deal, not just because of how it helps with second-line melanoma treatment, and that's not a small thing in and of itself, but it also shows that immunotherapy is actually very interesting. And predictions of whether or not immunotherapy is going to work are very interesting as well. Immunotherapy is one of the very first therapies that's actually been shown now with this trial that a PD-1 inhibitor can actually continue to provide benefits beyond first-line progression. That's never been shown in a randomized controlled clinical trial before. And recognizing that putting together immunotherapies or chemotherapies or targeted therapies or whatever that might be, even beyond that first line of progression, really opens the door to being able to start searching out either signatures or molecular findings that can help predispose to those patients that are ultimately going to get which combination of therapy. This is absolutely excellent. It's a great paper. Congratulations. And I love the fact that, um, yes, it took eight, nine years, but it's in, <laughs> it's in nature. So, I, you know, not a lot of people can say they published in, in nature. So congratulations. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity, Channing. Thank you so much for coming on the Keras Molecular Minute, Dr. Ari Vanderwald. And I did say your last name correctly. You did, and I appreciate that. Folks, thank you so much for listening and for being supportive of the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Don't forget to offer opinions, ideas, and reach out to me at cnabhan at krsls.com. Special thanks to Dr. Ari Vanderwald for being on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast, sharing his wisdom, his expertise, his experience, and the amazing work that he is doing at Keras to make sure that we advance our clinical trial portfolio so that we achieve our vision of improving the outcomes of all patients with cancer. Take care. Until next time.